scripture reading is from the Gospel according to Luke chapter 18. It's a story Jesus tells that you are probably very, very familiar with. And there's a danger because we're so familiar we often don't hear it anymore. So let us pay heed to it. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 9, it's page 877 in that blue Bible. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, now let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles 33. As we continue our series, it's a series through First and Second Chronicles called Reclaim, Revive, Reform, Return. We're coming pretty close to the end of this series, and so here's where we just happen to be is chapter 33. And that, if you're in your Bible there, which I hope you are, that's page 385 if you're using that blue Bible, and I would ask you to keep your Bible open here, because I'm going to be here for the rest of the morning. So Hezekiah, godly King Hezekiah, an honorable man who lived an honorable life and received great honors in his death. Godly Hezekiah does as it happens he sires an ungodly son, reminding us again that parenting is not automatic. Somebody here needs to hear this. Parenting outcomes are not automatic. You can do all the right things and then still walk away. Godly Hezekiah sires godless Manasseh. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years the longest reign in all of Judah, 55 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Is the English telling you that in the Hebrew underneath this is God's personal name, Yahweh. It's not that he did evil in the sight of Baal or Ishtar or Marduk. It's that he did evil in the sight of Yahweh. It's very personal. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord, whom Yahweh, drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected altars to the Baals, and he made Asheroth the fertility shrines. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them, and he built altars in the house of the Lord, in the house of Yahweh, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven and the two courts of the house of Yahweh. And he burned his sons as an offering to the, in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery. And he dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger. And he carved 
and the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God. The very house that God had said, my name will be there forever. If only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them. All the law and the statutes, the rules, even through Moses. And so verse 9, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom Yahweh, whom the Lord, had destroyed before the people of Israel. And the Lord, Yahweh, spoke to Manasseh and to His people. But they paid no attention. And so comes God's rigor, and Manasseh is defeated and carried off to Assyria. And it's while he's in Assyria, verse 12, when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of Yahweh, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And he prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again into Jerusalem, into his kingdom Then Manasseh knew that Yahweh was God. And so Manasseh tries to rebuild all that he has destroyed, returning to the ways of his fathers, and yet not everybody is on board. Verse 17, Nevertheless, the people still sacrifice at the high places, but only to Yahweh their God. They continued their pagan religion, but now took God's name and slapped it on there. We call that syncretism. Verse 18, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers, the prophets, who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, in the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel, and his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and his faithlessness and the sites in which he built high places and built up the Asherim and the images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. And Manasseh dies, and his son Amon reigns in his place for two very, very short years. And Amon continues his daddy's earlier uh, practices. So it's evil, evil, evil. That's what verse 22 says, basically. And then verse 23, Amon did not humble himself before Yahweh as Manasseh, his father, had humbled himself. But this Amon incurred guilt more and more. So bad that his servants ended up conspiring against him and assassinating him, and then they were themselves killed. What I've read to you from Luke, from the Gospel according to Luke, what I've read to you and summarized from 2 Chronicles 33, my friends, it is, as Paul puts it in Romans 15, it is the instructive, encouraging, hope-giving Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Your rigor, O God, your rigor is for the benefit of your people so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Even your servant Paul said that at communion. That when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. So, O Lord, help us. Help us to stomach what we hear this day. For Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. So there's some sermon notes there outlined on the back of the worship guide if you need a place to write notes or doodle, whatever you do to stay awake and keep attentive. It's okay. It'd be pretty funny if I was up here doodling while I was preaching. That would be... 
So let me tell you a story about the Civil War for just a minute. Just one little piece. Food was, could be a problem in the Civil War, especially when you're transporting, trying to transport fresh meat for thousands upon hundreds of thousands of soldiers over long distances in the day before refrigerator trucks or ice boxes or any of that. Trying to get fresh meat across long distances was pretty hard to do. So it didn't happen a lot. Sometimes the troops would end up receiving what was called salt horse. Doesn't mean that it was horse meat, but it could have been. We used to call that in the military mystery meat. It was a mystery what was in there, and you didn't want to know the mystery. Right? It could be horse, could be pork, could be beef, whatever it was. It was called salt horse. And it was meat that was boiled four or five times, maybe as much as nine times, and it was heavily salted. And some, on occasion, that slab of meat would become putrid and rancid. And when that was the occasion, and they were going to get their slice of this rancid meat, the soldiers were known to fall into formation, pick up the, the, the slab of horse, salt horse reverently, lay it on some leather straps, and then they would have funeral uh, 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 pole bearers come and grab the straps, all in formation, sir, and they would begin to march solemnly, like this, as the trumpeter is playing funeral music. And then they would march the way promptly to the dump, where they would lay the dearly deceased in its final resting place. And then, as it says, as the histories tell us, the, the one who was over the whole event would say some solemn words about the departed, and then all the soldiers who were carrying weapons would raise their guns and fire, something like a 21-gun salute. That sounds very military. I just want you to know from my experience. My friends, as you look at this passage, as we move into this long, long season of Manasseh's reign, it's the longest reign in all of Judah, 55 years, and if you add his son, Amon, his two years, carrying on the same policies, you realize it's 57 years. We move into the longest season of a reign, of Manasseh's reign, and you can almost imagine that the historian who is writing these notes is holding his nose because it reeks. The stench of this whole man's life, or most of it, is overpowering. And how do I know that? Because it's 57 years, and yet how many verses does he give to it? 25. He does not want to talk about it much because he ain't happy. In fact, he gives almost equal time to the before and the after of Manasseh's life. Almost equal time, though they probably didn't cover the same amount of years. The historian gives very few verses because he's busy holding his nose. This story reeks to him. And yet, all is not lost. Let's see. So first off is Manasseh's rascality, and that's verses 1 through 9, and then all of Amon's reign, verses 21 through 25. I'm saying he's continuing Manasseh's policies, so I'm just putting it all under Manasseh's rascality. Yes, by the way, rascality is a real word. It is in the dictionary. It means he's being rascally in his actions. He's being repugnant and terrible. So notice that Manasseh's rascality was pervasive. Three times, it either specifically states it or it implies it, that Manasseh led the way 
to act like or act worse than the doomed peoples who had once inhabited the land previously. So notice how it's put when you look at verse 2. And he did according to the abominations of the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel. And then at the end of this negative section, verse 9, he says it again, to do more evil than the nations whom Yahweh destroyed before the people of Israel. And then right in the middle of verse 6, it's implied he did much evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger. Manasseh is acting very much like his great-great-great-granddaddy Ahaz back in chapter 28. Ahaz and Manasseh both choose not to be identified as people of God, as those who serve the Lord God, but would rather be identified with the deuced and the doomed. Deuced, just another way of saying damned. To be identified with the deuced and the doomed by his thorough overhaul of his own life and of his society. In fact, his rascality was so pervasive that what he did is he wiped out, verses 3 through 7, he wiped out, it was all planned and intentional. He wiped out all of the traditional, visual, societal vestiges of God's rulership. Did everything he could to take the name of Yahweh, the name of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob off the books and out of the memorials and desecrate his temple to where it became a pagan temple. In fact, it's very interesting that this is the one time it says he set up altars in the temple to all the hosts of heaven which if you go back to Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 5, God specifically said, don't make altars anywhere to all the hosts of heaven to worship them. I mean, Manasseh is intentionally trying to get rid of God. I don't want this God, and I don't want this God telling me my business. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to do it my way. That's what Manasseh was doing. His rascality was also pervasive in that he rejected God's directions, whether they were written or spoken. Look at verse 10. Yahweh spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. His far-reaching rejection of God's directions can be seen by the fact that there is not a prophet anywhere in all of sacred Scripture who ever says they prophesied during the reign of Manasseh. Some years ago when I was preaching on First and Second Kings down in Midland, Texas, I stumbled upon that and realized, oh yeah, he had a plan. He had a pogrom going on. And I looked and I went all over and none of the prophets ever said they prophesied during Manasseh's reign. They'll say they prophesied during Jehozadak or during Ahab's even or during uh, Josiah's or whatever. They'll tell you, at the, if you look through all the prophets, they will tell you when they prophesied, almost all of them, there's not a soul that says they prophesied during the reign of Manasseh. Why would that be? Because he rejects the word. And that rejection probably was very bloody. Anybody remember King Ahab and rotten Queen Jezebel? You remember their program? They hunted down all the prophets and tried to mow them all down and get rid of them all, right? So no surprise, Manasseh appears to be doing the same. In fact... A Jewish historian named Josephus, who wrote about 800 years after Manasseh, tells us specifically that this was part of his program. Quote, 
Manasseh departed from the conduct of his father. An interesting phrase, by the way. And he fell into a course of life quite contrary thereto, and he showed himself in his manners most wicked in all respects. He didn't stop doing any kind of impiety. He just did more and more impiety. And then it goes on to say, by setting out from a contempt of God, he barbarously slew all the righteous men that were among the Hebrews, nor would he spare the prophets, for he every day slew some of them till Jerusalem was overflown with blood. So said Josephus the historian. He was that thorough in his rejection. He, wanted not to have, he did not want to have anything to do with this God. He didn't want to hear from this God. He didn't want any directions from this God. He didn't want even this God to be in his memory. He wanted to wipe him out from all of Judah. And his son Amon continued this rascally agenda for two short years after Manasseh had died. But notice that Manasseh's rascality was also intentional in that it undid, it undid all that had gone on in his father's time. There's a hint here. If you go back to verse 2, you can't miss it because it's meant to imply this is the case for every one of these things that will be mentioned. It says in verse 2, or verse 3, for he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. Manasseh's program was an intentional revolt against all that his father had done. He unraveled all of the reforming and reviving practices that had gone on in his father's time. Not can only imagine what must have been in his head. I'm sure if we had Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung and Jordan Peterson sit down and cycle-analyze him, they would have come up with all kinds of things. In the end, he chose to do what he did, so it was evil. But maybe what was in his head was something like this. I'll not raise my family, and I will not rule my land the way my daddy did. Possibly. Very likely. My friends, let's go from preaching to meddling a little bit. For the last 60, 60 plus years, that's how old I am, 60 plus. I won't tell you how much the plus is. Okay? 62. For the last 60 plus years in my living memory, I've been watching and noticing and starting to see it even more clearly that we as a people, as a nation, are pulling our age groups apart. We love to seem to pull them apart, segregate by age group. And increasingly, in all of my living memory, each generation has acted, and each generation has spoken, and each generated, generation has voted, and each generation has generally done church, and each generation has thought as if they knew better than their parents' generation. And that doesn't mean that mom and dad's generation did do wrong things. They did. We did wrong things as mom and dad. Right? It's not saying they didn't do wrong things. But there's this implied, there's just this move to pull apart according to age groups, for example. And marketers love it. Marketers make lots of money off of it and play the age differences so that they can carve each of you out into your little enclave, age enclave, and target you because then you are more vulnerable. I just said it. Because then you are more vulnerable. 
Anybody remember the old slogan? It's not your father's Oldsmobile. Pontiac and Buick picked that up. Also, right? You're better. You know better than your mom and dad did, right? You see what I'm saying? The game is out there and it's being used by marketers and you're being played. You're being played. If we can pull you apart and put you in your little age group, then you are more vulnerable to our ploy. Now that's just marketers. We could go down other aspects as well. And so then, this age segregation shows up in damaging ways, such as, and I don't think I'm talking about any younger families here, okay, I really don't, but I have heard younger families do this, such as when younger families throw off their parenting practices and their parenting discipline from their parents or from older generations with a dismissive attitude, and I have heard these words, we know better. We know better. And the same attitude goes along with regarding how to be a church and so many others. Now, that's Manassehism, throwing off your fathers. But let me go another side, because most people never talk about this. There's another kind of Manassehism. Right? So younger Manassehism is nobody over 40. Older Manassehism is Nobody under 50. We, we fall prey to the age segregation. They're snowflakes. Are you serious? Are you serious? Look around the room. Do you think these people are all snowflakes? Well, they're socialists. They're Marxists. They think that missions is just colonialism. Look around the room. Do you think these people feel that way? No, they don't. You know better. Look at your own kids. Do you think they're Marxists and socialists? They're snowflakes? Your kids? Really? Who are you talking about? Oh, the kids that Fox News or some other media source tells me are out there. Right? You know what I'm saying? Have I gone to meddling enough? Manassehism goes both directions. Nobody over 40, nobody under 50. And it's destroying much in our country, but it is impacting our churches. It is impacting our churches. In the end, if we're honest, we are all Manassehs in our hearts. And each and every one of us ought to probe the depths of our own self-delusions and recognize how, even in our churches, we follow Manasseh far more than we follow mighty God. We follow Manasseh far more than we follow mighty God. And dear friends, that's worldliness. When we follow down that, when we go that direction, we are being worldly. We're acting like the world, which loves to divide. Loves to segregate people. Loves to make each one act like the tax collector I mean, not the tax collector, but the Pharisee who's quite proud of their own righteousness and looks down on the others with contempt. That's worldliness. And dear friends, the gospel of Jesus that makes people who are at odds united together. Christ is our peace. He takes of the two, Jew and Gentile, Johnny Rebs and Billy Yanks, 
Crips and Bloods, Republicans and Democrats, he makes the two one new humankind in himself. The gospel of Jesus Christ that makes people who are at odds united together in him calls us to a task. It calls us to push hard against a divisive, polarizing culture that is pushing hard against us. The gospel that pulls us together calls us to push hard against a divisive, polarizing culture that is pushing hard against us. Now you may be thinking, I hope you're thinking, well, what are we going to do about it? What do you want us to do about it? What are you talking about? How do we act? Well, I'm glad you asked if you asked that. I hope at least two of you did. Because I'm talking to the two of you then. There was a recent article put out by The Atlantic. I almost never read The Atlantic, but this one caught my attention. It's called, Your Friends Don't, have, don't All Have to Be the Same Age. That caught my attention. And the whole point of the article, it's very short. I made 20 copies. They're back there in the credenza. As you leave, I hope you grab one. The whole point is that we are a divided people and they go right through all of the age segregation. And then it says, we didn't used to be, why in fact, we didn't used to be when more people went to church. Because why? Because the gospel, they didn't say this, but I'm going to go on. Because the gospel pulls us together. You get what I'm saying? And so one of the things they point out is that most people have friends that are within 15 years of their own age. But we didn't used to. And we were a healthier people. And so they encourage us making friends, be it with those who are beyond our age groups. I think that's a very, I find it funny that this is a non-Christian catching what I've been saying, if some of you are listening, for almost 10 years that I've been here. Really, pick up the article. And remember, the gospel pulls us together. Make friends with one another, no matter the age group. Because Jesus pulls us into that. And so my friends, Manasseh's rascality brought God's rigor. And that's verse 11. You can't miss it, God's rigor. All the news reports that we have, all the press releases we have about Assyria are true. Assyria was a very violent and vicious nation, and they were well known for using meat hooks and chains and mutilation to subjugate their defeated foes. And so notice here it says they use hooks on Manasseh. They probably they did. They used real hooks, probably meat hooks, possibly in his cheeks. And if he survived being drugged all the way to the capital city of Assyria, then he would have been scarred for life, never able to recover from that. And yet we're brought into a little secret of all of this, and it's there in verse 11. Notice how it begins. Yahweh brought upon them the commanders of the army of the kings of Assyria who captured Manasseh. Oh, God uses human nations as tools when He brings His rigor. So God's rigor has consequence, was a consequence of their rascality. And it reminds us, because He is showing His rigor upon His people, it reminds us that God shows no partiality. 
God shows no favoritism. If His people want to live like pagans and pedophiles and philanderers and voracious peoples of the world, then His rigor awaits them equally. Paul at communion said that to us. In 1 Corinthians 11, he's talking about communion. He says it. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. Why? So that we may not be condemned along with the world. But notice that God shows no partiality. So, dear friends, Manasseh and God's people lived like the doomed and the deuced. Thus they received similar similar temporal judgments. Ah, but remember, God's rigor is meant to bring what? God's restoration. God's rigor is meant to bring God's restoration. Thank God, Manasseh, verse 12 through 20. Manasseh runs into the arms and into the embrace of God's restoration. That's verses 12 through 20. Now notice right up front, here's Manasseh who tried to get rid of all he could of God in the homeland. And now he's captured and he's hauled off to Assyria, to pagan land. And he's thrown into prison. And who does he find in prison with him? God. Isn't that amazing? You can't get rid of him. God is on the move. Manasseh found that God was right there with him and that God not only was with him, but that God stood ready to hear, forgive, and heal. Listen again as you look at... As you look at um, back at verse... Um, verse 12, and when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of Yahweh, his God. There he was. And he found God in the most unlikely place. And that God stood ready to hear, forgive, and heal. And so Manasseh takes up God's health-giving prescription in chapter 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked way, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land, heal the kingdom. And so notice that Manasseh humbling himself is noted four times in this chapter. Verse 12, verse 19, and twice in verse 23. Verse 12, I just read it to you a minute ago, part of it. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of Yahweh his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. That's interesting language. But he humbled himself greatly. It brings it up again in verse 19 as it's summarizing Manasseh's rascality and then his restoration as well. It says says that um, before he humbled himself, and Manasseh's humbling himself becomes the standard by which Amon is actually judged. Verse 23. Amon, his son, did not humble himself before Yahweh as Manasseh. His father had humbled himself. Notice, him humbling himself is noted four times, and his prayer is capitalized on three times. Verse 12, 13, and 19. Verse 12, he entreated the favor of his God. Verse 13, he prayed. Verse 19, he, his prayer. The centerpiece of this whole story is God's restoration. 
It takes centerpiece, and it's some of the most touching language. It's in verse 13 and 19. If you're, hopefully you got your Bibles open, you can see it. Verse 13, he prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his prayer. Verse 19, and his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty. I, I love it when the historian repeats something because he knows that we sometimes fall asleep when we're reading. So he's going to make sure that we catch it either one time or the other or both. God was moved by his entreaty. Do you not hear? That's touching language. Is that not touching language? God was moved by his entreaty. God stands ready to hear, to forgive, and to heal. He was moved by his entreaty. Dear friend, I ask you pointedly, do you know the God who in his steadfast love is actually moved by your entreaty? I mean, you think about the story that Jesus told. There's the tax collector who really wasn't praying to God. He was too busy praying about his own, his own resume. Then there's I mean, the Pharisee, excuse me. Then there's the tax collector. And what does he do? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus' magic words right after that. This man went home justified. He went home on God's good side. He was moved by his entreaty. God was moved by his entreaty. Do you know the God who is moved by your entreaty? Now, God's restoration did not take away all of the consequences of Manasseh's rascality. Verse 17, not everybody was on board. right? All the people, they wanted to continue with their... Uh, dabbling with their coexist and multicultural, social, uh, spiritual multiculturalism, but they want to put God's picture on there some. And even his own son, Amon, will not go along with his change. But dear friends, God's restoration was genuine, and Manasseh's repentance was genuine. How do you know it was genuine? Because. He restored what his father had done. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't continue the age-segregated thing to go to that part of the sermon, but he actually restores all the things he had destroyed that his father had established. There was a sense of restitution. I love the way that our Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his own sin, does, and the apprehension, the comprehension, the grasping, the seizing of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it to God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Notice that God's restoration includes our turning to God and seeking Him, which means we turn away from our wicked deeds. And we do this with full purpose of and endeavoring after new obedience. It's not entire sanctification, not complete holiness. It's a desire, it's an aim, it's a move, right? It's a, an endeavoring after. But all of that is all grounded upon the earlier part of the, what the Shorter Catechism puts. That whole new obedience is growing out of two things. 
a true sense of our own sin, that it really is sin, and it's our sin, but then there's the other side, the apprehension, the seizing of the mercy of God in Christ. And so I ask you again, do you know this God who can be moved by your entreaties? Do you know this God who stands ready to hear, to forgive, and heal? Have you grabbed hold of His mercy in Christ? He's there, ready for you. Jesus Himself even said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through Me. Right? This is how we get a hold of Him. We come to Jesus. We call upon the name of the Lord. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord is saved. That's how we find this God who stands ready to hear, to forgive, and to heal. Do you know Him? My friends, this is Advent season. Woo! And it's all about Jesus and all about preparing for the coming of Jesus. And it's a whole month of you hearing, do you know Him? He wants you to know Him. Right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know this God? We even sang it in one of the hymns, how uh, God and sinners are reconciled, right? All of that. Do you know this God? You can be moved by your entreaties. This God who, want, who stands ready to hear, to forgive, and heal. Let's pray. What amazing, amazing kindness, Lord, that you stand ready to hear, to forgive, and to heal. That you can be moved by the entreaties of broken, heartbroken sinners who recognize their own sin and recognize that you are a God full of steadfast love. Lord, I pray for any here who have never called upon you, who don't know you, who haven't known you. I pray that even beginning this very day, they may run to you, they may, they may cry out to you, they may come to apprehend the mercy of God in Christ that You would move upon their hearts. I pray for all of us, Lord, that You would help us. You, we who, who You have grabbed hold of in Your Gospel, in Your Son, Jesus Christ, that You would strengthen us to push hard against this culture, this divisive, polarizing culture, as it is pushing hard against us. Lord, hear our, hear our cry as we pray to You. In Jesus' name, amen.